go through a few chapters here, some really, really cool chapters. And um, believe it or not, um, David is going through some struggles. Uh, first of all, he's struggling with the leaders of the nations. The, the judges are unjust, uh, the leaders are unlawful, the rulers are unrighteous. And so, um, you know, he's struggling, you know, with what's going on in the nation. And so we're going to see, though, that at the end of the psalm, he declares victory. Uh, the second psalm we're going to see is when they surrounded his house and, and things didn't look good and they wanted to kill him. And so imagine you being in your house surrounded by the army. Okay, and it, it kind of doesn't look good for you because you're just one person. But at the end of that psalm, we're going to see he declares victory. And then the third psalm, if we have a chance, if we have time to go there, we're going to see it's a time when David the king had experienced defeat in battle. And I don't know if you guys know, knew this or not, but you know, usually when we read the Bible, we read you know, 2 Samuel, we read you know, 1 Chronicles, we don't really see David's defeats, but that's where sometimes you have to read the parallel passages and we're going to see in, in Psalm 60 that he did suffer defeat. But, you know, as he's there, he, he, he prays, he, he sings, and he declares victory. And so the point is this, it doesn't matter what the situation is nationally, you know, there at home, personally, it doesn't matter what the situation is, a citizen or, or a king. As Christians, as believers, we should be the same way. We should declare victory. No matter what your situation is, we should be bold and we should be confident about victory. Why? Because it's Christ. You know, we're his kids. We have placed our faith in him. We don't have to freak out. We don't have to worry and so I pray that that would be something that we hold on to because I think that when we're bold and confident in victory, then it changes us now. You know, I was thinking about um, Joe Namath, and I know this goes way back, and a lot of you guys have no, no idea who Joe Namath is. How many of you have heard of Joe Namath? I'm curious. Okay, some of you guys have. Some of you younger people, you don't know who he is. I think we have a picture of him. And it was 1969. It was Super Bowl three. And uh, Joe Namath was on the New York Jets. Okay, this is the new league. Uh, the, the AFL started in 1960. The NFL started 40 years before that in 1920. So the NFL, they had all the good teams. They were like, you know, the real league. But they had just started playing each other in the Super Bowl. They didn't even call it the Super Bowl yet. Up to that point, it was called the championship game. And so anyways, they started calling it Super Bowl in Super Bowl three, And so here's uh, Joe Namath and the New York Jets, seven to one underdogs. I mean, nobody thought they had a chance except Joe Namath. And so Joe Namath went before the press and he made this crazy, radical, bold, confident statement. And he said that the Jets would win on Sunday. I guarantee it. And then so, uh, you know, you wonder, well, how did he know they would win? And, you know, from his perspective, he said they were able to watch some of the footage and they saw the weaknesses of the Baltimore Colts and, and they knew his team. And so he just knew they would win and they went on to win against all odds. And Joe Namath went on. He worked hard in that game. He became the most valuable player. He was awarded that award. 
in Super Bowl three, and they won, you know, 16 to seven. And so, you know, I, I was just thinking, if Joe Namath can do it, why can't we? <laughs> you know, if he can look at their weaknesses and know his strengths, if we can look at the enemy's weaknesses and know God's strength, why can't we, you know, declare victory? Why can't we be confident no matter what the situation is? Why is it a lot of times that we're so afraid when in all reality we're God's children? And so what happens is when you have this confidence, not confidence in, in self, it's not self-confidence, it's confidence in God, then it changes the way you play the game. It changes the way you live your life. And so hopefully today's study we're going to see that in every single psalm, no matter what the situation is. David, even before it happens, is declaring victory. And so we read, beginning in Psalm 58, in verse 1, it says, To the chief musician set to do not destroy, it's a, a miktam of David. And so here we see another one of those psalms uh, set to do not destroy. We saw it in 57. We'll see it again in 59 and again in 75. And so, you know, some people think that might be the music. I personally think it's not just the music. I think it's the message. It's the prayer of David. Do not destroy. Lord, don't let me be destroyed. Because we know that's the agenda of the enemy. In John 10, 10, the thief has come, has not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. And so, you know, this psalm is set to that music and message. And it's another miktam of David. It says right here, and again, we're not sure exactly what that is. We know it's found in Psalm 16, as well as Psalms 56 through 60. And so, a miktam. Some say it's a liturgical term or a musical term. We do know that the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Bible, refers to a miktam as a tablet because the root of the word means to stamp on or engrave. And so basically a miktam is a composition so valuable that it's worthy to be preserved for generations to come. And so one person even called a miktam something as precious as fine gold. And so basically it's a, it's a special psalm. And, 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 and in this special psalm, David begins by addressing the unjust judges, the unlawful leaders in the land. Notice there again in verse 1, he says, do you indeed speak righteousness, you silent ones? Do you judge uprightly, you sons of men? No. In heart you work wickedness. You weigh out the violence of your hands in the earth. And so David here, he kind of speaks to these guys. He speaks to the silent ones. He speaks to the violent ones. He speaks to them. And he asks them a question, right? And, and he answers it, right? It's interesting, the, the, word, the word silent ones, um, most other translations, you translate that as rulers. And so there's no doubt about the fact that it's in reference to King Saul and some of the other leaders that had come against David unjustly, unlawfully, right? And so David talks to them and he says, do you guys speak justice? Do, do you guys judge people fairly? And, and he answers them, no, you plot injustice in your hearts. You deal out violence throughout the land. You know, right there where he says, you guys weigh it, right there, you weigh out the violence. Usually, you guys have seen the scales, right? You, to weigh something means that it's just. But in this case, weighing, let be Meyer said, 
is always symbolic of justice, but these unjust judges wait out violence rather than justice. And so, and even today, I'm sure you guys probably know, um, man, imagine if we knew everything that was going on in our government, all the people they killed. It was back then. It's always been. And you, you know, you look around today, and you look not only in the United States of America, but you look all around the world, and and we're going to see as we go through this psalm that God's going to deal with every single one of those unjust judges, unlawful leaders, and righteous rulers. Those judges are going to stand before the judge, right? Those kings are going to stand before the king. And so he begins by addressing the leaders, and then he turns to the public. And rather than talking to the leaders, he talks about them. In verse 3, he says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are like the deaf cobra that stops its ear, which will not heed the voice of charmers, charming ever so scarefully. And so, you know, the wicked, they're estranged from the womb. That's what he says. And so David there is actually giving us the, the theological doctrine of original sin you know we're born sinners right we don't we're not sinners because we sin we we sin because we're sinners right and that's what we see right here that the wicked are estranged from the womb they're born that way and of course all of us were born that way you know in that sense uh, if you read psalm 51 5 david says in sin did my mother conceive me in romans Chapter 5, verse 12, it talks about the fact that we're all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve who fell in the garden. So they're born that way. But the moment you're born again, then you have a different nature, right? And so um, when you look at this right here, it's interesting when he makes the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. You know, it's interesting also how he, he, he compares them to um, the serpents right here. And did you guys know that a young snake will bite as swiftly and venomously as an older snake? Did you guys know that? I'm curious. How many of you here, you have a healthy fear of snakes? What would you do like if a snake slithered in here right now? I know some people, they're not afraid of snakes. Huh? How many of you here are not afraid of snakes? You pick them up and they're like, you wrap them around your neck and you're like, it's cool. I remember I saw one girl doing that at a, at a birthday party with kids, and I'm like, oh my God. I, I kind of struggle with snakes uh, for whatever reason, but I've seen these guys on YouTube and stuff, and they're handling them like crazy, right? And so, of course, it, it depends on the snake. Um, I know that those who are unfortunate enough to be bitten by snakes have described uh, agonizing pain, difficulty breathing, vomiting, nausea, numbness, and eventually, depending on the snake bite, uh, organ failure. Um, it's a painful way of dying. And even though we've developed a lot of anti-venom stuff, which has saved a lot of lives, if not treated, some snakes will bite you and you'll die in 30 minutes. And so I don't know if you guys have ever studied snakes. I know the uh, viper, the cobra. A lot of people think the black mamba. Did you know the black mamba is really a snake? You guys thought it was Kobe, huh? <laughs> it's a real snake and anyways it's pretty bad but the worst snake they say is the belcher's sea snake its venom is about a hundred times more toxic 
than any other snake in the world. So just to give you an idea how toxic it is, you know, one drop from a king cobra is powerful enough to kill over 150 people. But only a few milligrams of the Belcher's sea snake is able to kill a thousand people. And so some snakes are worse than others, huh? And David here is comparing these leaders to snakes. And, and all it takes is a word, just a few words that someone says, a little seed of discord, and you turn someone against someone else. You know, here's Saul, and I don't know exactly how it happened. The enemy lied to him. In one sense, that's a snake. And then maybe others lied to him. Hey, David, he's, he wants to, you know, take over the kingdom. You know, treason is in his heart, you know. And next thing you know, Saul's telling that guy and that guy and that guy. Next thing you know, the whole country, the, all the soldiers want to take this guy down. Why? Because of everybody's talking smack and lies. You got to be really careful. You know, David here is talking about these people that are doing this thing. And, and right here, he's describing those who reject God's plan of salvation as poisonous, venomous snakes. And if they're slithering around in the kingdom of men, then it's not good for them. And so that's just who they are. And, you know, and he says right there, he talks about the charmer in verse 5, and you play the most skillful music. And, you know, you can play the most beautiful music for them, try to share with them God's love and the life that he offers and the truth, but they prefer oftentimes to stay deaf. They close their ears to reality and reason. And so the leaders of the land were liars. They didn't want to listen to the truth. And so David writes this psalm, and he begins by talking to them, and then he continues by talking about them, and then he does the most important thing of all. What do you do when the leaders are all jacked up? He, he talks to God. And look what he says in verse 6. Break their teeth. <laughs> Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them flow away as waters which run continually. When he bends his bow, let his arrows be as if cut in pieces. Let them be like a snail which melts away when you put salt on it. No, I'm just joking. Melts away as it goes. You know, like a stillborn child of a woman that they may not see the sun. And it's interesting how he talks about snakes and he talks about lions because both are descriptions of the devil in the Bible, right? And so what's going on behind the scenes is the leaders were under the influence of the enemy. The lions were lying, and so David prays, God, you know, break their teeth, break their fangs, let them flow away like the waters of the river, never to return, like a waterfall. When he bends his bow to shoot at others, and that's a biblical picture of someone attacking another person with words. He says, Lord, when that happens, then break those arrows, you know, you know break off the arrowhead, let them fall apart. Let them be like a melting snail. And I know it sounds you know, awful, but David prays that they die. And, and, and he, he kind of says it would have been better if God would have turned back the clock and all these awful leaders, rulers, had never been born alive, stillborn. No, I, I don't know how it works with you guys when you pray. Like if someone really hates you, someone really comes against you, 
Um, you know, you got things going on. I know today I was praying for my enemies. I don't really know who they are, but I have a hunch, maybe that person or that person or that person. You know, David prayed in precatory psalms, um, and he was just pouring out his heart. He's just basically saying, Lord, this is how I feel. You know, and I don't know. I look at you guys, and I'm like, man, they're all nice people. But you just never know. There might be someone in your life who really wants to take you down, and, and you pray, Lord, you just let them get in a car accident or something. Or... <laughs> I'm just joking. You probably don't pray that now because uh, we have New Testament light. David here, though, you know, and here's the thing. It's serious stuff. We're not talking about your boss who's not giving you your day off. You know, we're not talking about the person over there who has some theological disagreement with you. We're talking about people who are doing some ruthless things. I mean, absolutely ruthless, right? I mean, some might question David's heart here, but I like what Warren Wiersbe said. He said, seeing innocent people suffer because of unjust judges makes David angry, and rightly so. You know, there, there's a righteous anger that ought to show itself whenever innocent people are condemned or helpless people are abused. David didn't do any of the things he mentioned, but instead he asked the Lord to do them. He knew that vengeance belonged to the Lord. You know, and, and so you think of Attila the Hun. You think of Genghis Khan. You think of Idi Amin. You know, he was the, 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 the dictator of Uganda from 71 to 79, killed 500,000 of his people. You know, I'd probably say, Lord, save him, and if he doesn't want to get saved, kill him. I think I probably would, and I'm kind of a nice guy, but, you know, you think about some of these leaders, Pol Pot, he was the prime minister of Cambodia from 76 to 79, only three years, but he tore families apart, he displaced and tortured millions of people, and was responsible for one million Cambodian's death. I mean, think about that. I mean, again, this is a guy like that. Someone you, maybe you nev never heard of, Adolf Eichmann. He was one of the primary organizers of the Holocaust during World War II. He was hung by the state of Israel for his part in the extermination of Jews. And prior to his execution, he said this. This is what he said. The death of five million Jews on my conscience gives me extraordinary satisfaction. Think about that. And he was really responsible for the death of six billion Jews, but a man like that needs to die. You know, Joseph Stalin, he was the premier of Soviet Union from 41 to 1953, probably exercised the greatest political power in the history of the world. Stalin brought about the deaths of more than 20 million Russians. You see, there are, there are leaders like this. And of course, there's Adolf Hitler, chancellor and dictator of Germany from 33 to 1945. And you know, you look at this guy, and there's no doubt about it, he was possessed by the devil. He was single-handedly, I would say, in one sense, responsible for World War II, which caused the deaths of close to 60 million people. And so, well, you know, David here, he's praying for them to die, and you're like, well, what a, what a mean guy. No, some of these leaders, they're like this. And so David is praying these prayers. You know, as the psalm closes, David knows one day they're going to get it, <laughs> that God's justice will prevail. We read in verse 9, notice what it says. It says, 
before your, your pots can fill the burning thorns, he shall take them away as with a whirlwind, as in his living and burning wrath. The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. So that men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is God who judges in the earth. And so if you think about it, when David's writing this, he's writing in a time where it's just injustice in the land and, and the leaders are, are, are so unlawful, the rulers are so unrighteous, you know, these judges are so unjust, but he's declaring victory. He's declaring victory in the midst of that setting. And so he's telling them there in verse 9 that it's going to come, you know. And we know that thorns and these types of branches, they burn fast. But David says, listen, when God judges, it's going to be swift. Before your pots can fill the burning thorns, he's going to take them away, right? And it doesn't mean soon. It just means that when it happens, it's going to happen fast. You know, and there's a lot of people who they're living in sin. Sometimes they come to church, they're living in sin, and they think they're okay because God hasn't gotten them yet, but God's storing it up. God's waiting. God's calling them to get right. They don't want to get right, though, and then one day, boom, it's going to happen. It might not be soon, but when it comes, it'll be swift. And that's what we see here in looking at this, you know? I mean, when we see the wicked judge, the, the dictator, the, the rapist, the molester, the murderer, the unlawful leader, when we see God's vengeance, then what's going to happen is we're going to, right there it says, wash our feet in the blood of the wicked. And, and the picture here, if you could visualize it, maybe you guys have seen those movies where all those soldiers are on the battlefield and the victorious army, they're walking through the battlefield and they're plundering them. You know, hey, you got any, you know, guns or, you know, swords or things that I can use. And in the process, what are they doing? Their, their feet are getting all bloody, but it's because they're victorious. And, and that's what David is saying right here. David teaches us that there's no doubt about it. Again, notice there in verse 11, surely... There is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is God who judges in the earth. And so it's kind of cool just to know, you know, God's going to one day, no doubt about it, he's going to make every wrong right and he's going to establish justice. And so then we move on to Psalm 59 and verse 1, it says, To the chief musician set to do not destroy a miktam of David, when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. And so the background to this is in 1 Samuel chapter 19, when Saul began to get, you know, crazy in his desire to kill David. And so he sends the soldiers to get him and they're surrounding his house. And so we read in 1 Samuel 19.11 that Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. And Michal, that's David's wife, told him, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. And so it's an interesting thing. When I was reading it, I was just thinking, okay, so you got all these guys that are surrounding your house. And what do you do? You write a song. 
And, and then, and so I was just thinking, well, Lord, let me try it. And so I got in my office, I turned off the lights a little bit, and I started singing a little song and tried to write one, just to kind of see what it was like. You can do this, you guys. <laughs> you know, you can do this. Maybe if you're a worship leader, it's a, it'll sound better, but any one of us can do this. And like I told you before, this is how we fight. We fight through prayer. We fight through praise. We fight this spiritual battle. You know, here's David, and he's surrounded, and, you know, most of us here, what are we doing? We'll be sealing up the windows and the plywood, you know, here and there, and, you know, making sure my guns have fresh gunpowder, or whatever the case may be. And, uh, and, and David, however, is seeking the Lord. He's writing a song. Notice what it says right here. It says, deliver me, verse 1. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity and save me from bloodthirsty men. You know, David is just asking God, you know, spare me. You know, a couple of times he used that word deliverance, right? And if you can just imagine for a moment men thirsty for blood and and they're not vampires, right? They're, they're murderers. They're professional executioners. They, they surrounded your house. That's where David is. He, he prays for deliverance. And then he tells God why. You know, Lord, this is what's happening. Just in case, you know, you didn't know. He kind of fills the Lord in and all that's going on. In verse 3, he says, For look, they lie in wait for my life. The mighty gathered against me. Not... For my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. They, they run and prepare themselves through no fault of mine. Awake to help me and behold. And notice how verse 3 starts. It says, he asks God to look. And then the way verse 4 ends, he asks God to behold. He's just saying, Lord, watch over me. Lord, keep your eyes on me. Um, Lord, look, they've set an ambush against me, but I'm surrounded not for my sin. I haven't done anything wrong. And of course, you guys know that David hadn't done anything wrong, but Saul was after him. And sometimes we go through persecution, not because we've done something wrong, but because we've done something right. Sometimes because the enemy sees the potential in your life that you're going to experience even a greater persecution. And so that's where David is, right? Lord, look at their aggression. But, but I'm innocent of transgression. Lord, uh, awake, help me, and behold. And so, you know, we're blessed because we have the Holy Spirit to help us, but that's where he's at. Notice in verse 5, he says, You therefore, O Lord, God of hosts, the, the word when it says God of hosts, it's talking about the one who, who, who fights, the Lord of the army, God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be merciful to any wicked transgressors. Selah. Now, it's kind of interesting here that David would bring up all the nations. Because, you know, when you look at this situation, it seems more of a personal thing. Like, it's just me and my wife, we're in the house, we're surrounded by soldiers. What do the nations have to do with any of this, right? But, but what we find is it's not just personal. It is national. 
you know, for you guys, and if I can just say this, you know, you're, you're here and you're thinking, well, it's just personal. It's just me and the Lord. No, it's not. It's congregational. You know, when you get in trouble, it affects all of us. You know, when the enemy comes after you, it's, it, we're a family here. And so David, he loves his country. And he knows something's not right. He knows that the king of his country is fighting the wrong war. The king should be fighting the Philistines. He should be defeating the Moabites and the Edomites and the Syrians. But what's he doing? He's fighting me? And so David here is beginning to show his, his concern. Lord, I, I kind of want to live, and I'm, I'm, I'm not just for me, Lord. I want to live for the people. I want you to bless Israel. And so he starts talking about the nations, right? King Saul was guilty of fighting the wrong war. David wasn't his enemy. There were countries out there, like today, who want to wipe Israel off the face of the map. And so he loved the Lord. He loved his country. And it kind of shows how he would make a great king one day. But he's talking to the Lord. And, and in the meantime, you got these hit men on his hills. Look at verse 6. At evening they return. They growl like a dog. And go all around the city. Now nowadays, we love dogs, right? You guys love dogs? Dogs are man's best friend. They're beautiful. They're so amazing. Back then in Israel, they didn't love dogs. They were more like scavengers, okay? And it was a derogatory statement. These guys, um, they, they, it says in verse 7, they belch with their mouth, swords are in their lips, for they say, who hears? But you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. You shall have all the nations in derision. Verse 9 says, I will wait for you. And it could also be translated, I will watch for you. O you, his strength, can also be translated my strength, for God is my defense. My God of mercy shall come to meet me. God shall let me see my desire on my enemies. And so again, I don't know, um, surrounded, you're in your house, soldiers. How many of you would be confident? I'm, I'm good. I'm good. God's got this, man. You know, uh, like Joe Namath, I guarantee we're going to win on Sunday. What are you talking about? Seven to one odds against you. You know, you guys are the, the new team in town. The Baltimore Colts, man, they got Johnny Unitas. I mean, you don't got a chance. Oh, no, I guarantee we're going to win. That, that's how we should be no matter what's going on in our life. We're surrounded by the enemy. But, but, but when you have that faith, you know, it, 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 it just changes everything. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't do anything about it. You know, when you read the story right here, his wife let him down out the window. You guys remember the story? She let him down out the window. So, you know, they, they were smart. <laughs> you know, he didn't just go out the front door and say, hey, God's got me. No, he was smart, but, but he had confidence. It wasn't like he was afraid. It was just now God's going to prepare him as he's going to flee, you know, and be a fugitive for, for 10 years, 13 years in the, in the wilderness and so, um, but the thing that, that I love about it is that he says right here, you know, I'm, I'm going to win. I will wait for you. You're my strength, my defense. You're a merciful God. And you're going to let me see my desire on my enemies. You know, when I read everything that David is saying here, 
it, it basically seems to me like he has a peace that surpasses understanding. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. I don't know how, but I know I will. I, I don't know what's going to happen. And sometimes we think more of our family. I don't know how, but I know God's going to do something good. I just know he will. And, and I tell you what, God is blessed when we have that type of confident faith. You know, even though I'm surrounded, I'm outnumbered, these guys are out to get me, they're, they're ruthless, I know, Lord. You know, it talks about the Lord laughing <laughs> in verse 8, but you, O Lord, shall, shall laugh at them. I know, Lord, you have a smile on your face. You have a plan in your heart to defend me. And it's out of your mercy. Not only am I going to get out of this jam, but you're going to let me see my desire on my enemies. And so it's interesting. In verse 11, he says, Do not slay them, lest my people forget. Instead, scatter them by your power and bring them down. O Lord, our shield, for the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips let them even be taken in their pride and for the cursing and lying which they speak. Consume them in wrath. Consume them that they may not be and let them know that God rules in Jacob, not Saul. God rules in Jacob and even to the ends of the earth. Salah. Now, I, I thought it was interesting where he says, Lord, don't slay them. Instead, scatter them. And most commentators will say because he wanted them to be, you know, visual lessons. You know, Richard Nixon, he was a visual lesson. After he was impeached, um, then he was alive for a while and people would see him as a visual uh, lesson. Um, but also, I think in the back of my mind, I think maybe David was having a little mercy right here uh, towards Saul. Uh, I think when Saul did die and Jonathan did die, especially what he's talking about here, Saul, it, it broke his heart. Another thing I thought was interesting in verse 11, he says, do not slay them lest my people forget. Now, I thought that was interesting how David uses those words, my people, because more than likely what he's doing is he's holding on to the promise that God told him, one day you're going to be king. And so he's kind of owning that responsibility of the future kingdom over which he would serve it could also be in reference to the fact that he was just identifying with all the jews but you know again it comes back to that that patriotism he had the love he had for the people of the lord and so he prays and verse 14 these guys they keep coming back at evening they return they they growl like a dog they go all around the city they wander up and down for food and howl you know, if they're not satisfied. I mean, some of you guys were probably like this before you were saved. Huh? You were up all night driving all over the place. You go to Tommy's. You're making noise. You know, you're doing all this stuff. This is what these guys were doing. And he says, this is what they're doing. But verse 16, I will sing. I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. For you have been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. To you, O oh my strength, I will sing praises, for God is my defense, my God of mercy. And so if I were to take a, a, a survey here, I would ask you guys if you're a good singer. 
How many of you would raise your hands and say yes? Let's see. Well, most of you wouldn't because you're humble, right? Some of you are good singers, but the truth is most of you aren't, right? <laughs> and so, um, but does that mean that you shouldn't sing? You should sing. You should sing at home. I know I do. I, I, I won't sing in front of you. Well, once in a while I'll sing in front of you, but very rarely will I. But I sing. I sing at home. And that's what David is saying. Lord, in the middle of my predicaments, and it doesn't look good, I will sing. I will sing of your power. Because all that is part of the victory, you guys, that God's going to give us. Sometimes you put praise music on. I know when I'm ironing my clothes, usually I iron my clothes on Monday for the week. I'm, sitting, I'm listening to all the new songs and just praising the Lord. And it's cool because when you have the earphones on, you can't hear yourself. You know, and everyone else is like, they're tapping on their shoulders saying, can you tone it down a little bit? <laughs> but it's just so beautiful to see the way that he's guaranteeing victory, you know. And we see David prayed and David obeyed. Have you guys ever heard that saying, uh, pray as if it all depends on you, but work, I'm sorry, pray as if it all depends on God, but work as if it all depends on you? Have you guys ever heard that saying? It's a really cool saying. For the most part, it's true. I think you just got to pray like, man, God, you do it. But then you can't just sit back. You have to work. And so some people say D.L. Moody originated the statement with him. Some take it back as far as Augustine. Um, but it doesn't matter who said it. I think it's a great thing. And we see that in all of our, 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 our psalms today. They're praying, but they're also working. They're also doing things. Look at verse uh, 1 of Psalm 60. It says, To the chief musician set to Lily of the Testimony, a miktam of David, for teaching. When he fought against Mesopotamia and Syria, Zobah, and Joab returned and killed 12,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Now, this right here is a fascinating psalm to me in that it gives light. It gives more information than what we have in the historical books alone. You know, if you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 8 and 10 or 1 Chronicles 18 and 19, there you have the account from the historical books, but now we have the perspective from the poetical books. Now, if you isolated the historical books, you just looked at them, you would say, oh, that was an easy victory for David. But when you bring Psalm 60 into it, you find out that it wasn't. You find out that David did suffer defeat to a certain extent. At times, you know, he actually, you know, kind of like the Dodgers, you know, how down there, they're down 2-0 right now, right? And so a lot of people are already saying it's over. And, you know, I mean, maybe. I mean, no, we don't know the future when it comes to baseball. But um, it's not over, right? Should they give up? Some of you are nodding your head. Yes, please leave. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> no way, no way. You know, suffered, I'm down 2-0. I'm going to fight. Maybe you're here and you got defeated. Maybe you're here and you've stumbled and fallen in the past. And the enemy uses that as ammunition to try to keep you down. You know, David was defeated. And if he wanted to, he could have crumbled. And he could have said, oh, I can't do this. He could have got afraid. But he didn't. What happens was when he got defeated, 
he wrote this psalm. That, that's what we're seeing. You know, the example we have in David is so interesting. Look again in verse 1. When he fought against Mesopotamia and Syria of Zobah. And so look at what happens. Apparently when Joab and his army went out fighting the Syrians in the north, Israel was invaded by the Edomites from the south. So this would deal uh, some tough blows in the battle abroad as well as at home. And so Joab had to bring the forces back to deal with the Edomites. You know, it's kind of like um, Pearl Harbor. You guys know what happened in Pearl Harbor. The, the Japanese came and, 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 and you know, they, they surprised us, man. In Israel, when they were fighting the Syrians, you know, here you got these guys coming up and invading the land, and it was a, it was a tough hit. You know, the Battle of Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941, uh, seven hours of coordinated Japanese attacks, not only in Hawaii, but in the Philippines, Guam, the British Empire, Singapore, Hong Kong. Uh, what we find is the base was attacked by 353 Imperial Japanese aircraft, fighters, level and dive bombers, torpedo bombers, and they launched from six aircraft carriers. And what happened? All eight U.S. Navy battleships were damaged, four sunk. You know, what we find is that the Japanese sank uh, three or damaged three cruisers, three destroyers. 188 U.S. aircraft were destroyed. 2,403 Americans were killed. 1,178 were wounded. It was a surprise attack and it hit us hard. It hit us hard. But you guys know, we fought back, right? And that's kind of what we, we see here in, in David, you know? They, it was a surprise attack. And so David, he looks to the Lord and he writes the psalm. Notice what we read right here in verse 1. Oh God, you have cast us off. You have broken us down. You have been displeased. Oh, restore us again. You know, David sensed the Lord's displeasure and discipline, rejection and anger. And so what does he do is he asks for restoration. You know, I mean, he knew that it wasn't just a physical battle. It was a spiritual battle. The Bible says in Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. You know, we, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, right? We wrestle against principalities and powers. And so in the middle of the, of the war, what does he do? He prays. It reminds me of Asa in Second Chronicles 14. If you read the story, the Ethiopians came against him with a million men. What did Asa do to win? He prayed. Against a million men. God gave him the victory because he prayed. You know, even after major setbacks, notice it in verse 2, not just a little setback, major setbacks. It says in verse 2, you have made the earth tremble. You have broken it. Heal its breaches for it is shaking. You have shown your people hard things. You have made us drink the, the wine of confusion. It was tough. And this is David. For David to be defeated, it was a, a big thing. And so he, it's time to rally. In verse 4, 
you have given a banner to those who fear you. And that banner is a flag, and it's kind of like a flag. You know, if you can visualize it, just waving the American flag, rallying the American soldiers, waving the, the Christian flag, waving the, the flag of Israel, and kind of rallying them, that it may be displayed because of the truth, Selah, that your beloved may be delivered. Save with your right hand. That's a strong hand, and, and hear me. You know, and of course we know David's name, it means beloved. And it's so important to know that you're loved by God. And he's reminding God, don't forget, Lord, you love us. Or Right now you're displeased with us. For some reason we've experienced some sort of defeat. But, but Lord, I'm, I'm praying. And so God, it's kind of interesting, he answered. In, in verse 6, it says, God has spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and measure out the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine. And Ephraim also is the helmet for my head. Judah is my lawgiver. Moab is my washpot. Over Edom I will cast my shoe. Philistia, shout in triumph because of me. James chapter 4 and verse 2. It says, sometimes you don't have because you don't ask. Sometimes Christians don't win the battles. I'm not talking about the war, but the battles because they don't pray. But when you do pray, isn't it cool what God does? Here, David's in the middle of this whole thing. It could have been the collapse, but what ends up happening is he falls to his knees and he fights through prayer and praise. And it ends up being the victory. God answers, it says, in his holiness. Such a really cool phrase right there. He answers. And God says, I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem. The division of Shechem and the measuring in the valley of Sukkoth meant that God was claiming them for himself. And Shechem was the chief city of Ephraim, Warren Risby said. And with Sukkoth was located west of the Jordan River, while Gilead and Manasseh were east of the Jordan River. Ephraim was a strong tribe called to defend Israel. That's why he describes them there as the helmet. And Judah was chosen to be the royal tribe, the bearer of the scepter. And so God compared Moab, you know, to a wash basin where he would wash dirty feet. And then God said he would wipe his feet on Edom and he would shout in triumph over Philistia. And I don't know, you guys, I, I can visualize sometimes the demon that are, are signed to you, that are attacking you, that are trying to take you down. And as we get on our, on our face and our knees and God just says, I want to wipe my feet on them, they will not have their way in your life because we pray, right? And so the Lord, you know, here is so cool how he works everything out. And in verse 9, David asks, Well, who will bring me to the strong city? Who will lead me to Edom? It is, not, is it not you, O God, who cast us off? And you, O God, who do not go out with our armies? Give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. Through God we will do valiantly, for it is he who shall tread down our enemies. And so who will bring us? Who will lead us? And of course, the answer is God. You know, right now, it had looked kind of bleak. It looked like they had been rejected. 
that God didn't go out with them, that they were at a loss, that they were broken down, but he just asked for help and, and God's intervention takes place. God's power will conquer. God's help will help us do mighty things. You know, isn't it interesting how he says that the help of man is useless? You know, it doesn't mean that God can't use a man, but man is intended to be a vessel through which God would work. And so we look to the Lord, and a lot of times he'll use people, but ultimately our trust is in him. And so his whole military message of victory for Israel, if you go back to the beginning of the psalm, it's interesting. Look at the beginning. It says, A miktam of David for teaching. For teaching who? Well, a lot of people believe that this psalm was used by David to teach his soldiers how to fight. Not just with swords or spears. Not just with that kind of battle on the cavalry. But no, it's a, it's a, it's a way that I want to teach my soldiers how to fight with spiritual weapons. And so imagine you go into the army. Okay, open up your Bibles to Psalm 60, your scrolls. And let's learn about how the Lord gives us the victory. And when he does, last verse, I like that last verse right there. It says, through God we will do valiantly, for it is he who will tread down our enemies. When you guys think of the word tread, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Your tires. Because a lot of you guys need new tires, huh? <laughs> and God's just saying, I'm going to run right over them. I'm going to run right over your enemies. And you will do valiantly. You guys are going to do great things. When we were singing that song earlier, I was just, the Lord just ministered to me. Man, I, these people here, I have great things for them. And so I pray that you would know that. You know, one last quote, since we started with Joe Namath, we'll kind of go back to Joe Namath. And he says, when you have confidence, you can have a lot of fun. And when you have fun, you can do amazing things. And I was just thinking, of course, that's not a perfect statement for us as Christians, but when we have confidence in God, we can have a lot of joy. And there's something about joy that allows us this victory in the journey. The, the, the get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes off your failures. Get your eyes off your enemies and the circumstances and just know who you are in Christ. And when you do, you get that confidence in Him. And then you become another Paul the Apostle, man, or David, or, you know, someone that God really uses. Amen.